good to see you all this morning. I'm sorry that we were gone last week, uh, both because we missed you all and because we missed an outstanding lesson from Scott. And I really appreciate Scott for filling in for us. Um, I've been excited and I've been very um, uh, hesitant uh, about the class series section that we're starting right now. This is one of what I uh, anticipate and plan to be three lessons on Paul and his teachings that, that help us understand the theology of ethics. And so we start that today. And it's, it's one that is integral. I, it, this is not a subject where I can teach what I understand to be true uh, uh, in the 40 minutes that I present to you on a Sunday morning. And I have trouble even doing it in 40-minute sections. So whatever I teach each week integrates well with the next week. They're building blocks that, that hang together real close. In other words, if you're here for some but not here for all, please take advantage of all of the work our internet people do to post these lessons on the internet in audio or written or video form to try and catch up if it's something that, that seems interesting and helpful to you in your life. I can tell you the way I'm made. In the world of ethics, I like everything black and white. That's just my personality makeup. Gray makes me uncomfortable. When I was younger, gray made me break out in hives. I don't break out in hives anymore, but I'm convinced if you put a, put a blood pressure cuff on me, it elevates my blood pressure at least 10 to 15 points. One of the reasons I love American football is because it's got real clear rules and it's got a playing field and around the playing field is this white stripe. It's the out-of-bounds line. And you're able to look with great precision. Oh, is that where Texas Tech beat UT? <laughs> How did that get there? You're able to look with great precision at what the American public votes as the college football play of the year on the ESPN poll and see that Michael Crabtree's foot did not go out of bounds. There is green between his toe that's on the turf and that white out-of-bounds stripe. Now, if you play international football, what we in America call soccer, one of the problems I have with that game is the white out-of-bounds line's not out-of-bounds. Players can run outside of it all they want. And the ball is still in play if the ball's on the line. The ball's only out of bounds past the line. I think they ought to call it the almost out of bounds line. <laughs> because it's, it's, it, it just messes me up. I like my ethics the way I like my football. I like these really clear black and white lines so I can tell exactly where that line is. And I've always been this way. I can remember taking a class on ethics when I was in school. And one of the textbooks we had was a book by Joseph Fletcher entitled Situation Ethics. And in this book, Joseph Fletcher taught a philosophy that the end justifies the means. 
In other words, as long as you're headed and purposing for the right result, as long as you either reach the right result or we're trying to reach the right result, it, it, it's not a question of how you got there. So Fletcher would say, it's okay to lie if you're lying for a good reason. It's okay to uh, commit most any moral transgression that, that people normative would call moral as long as you're doing it for the right reason and for a better purpose. I didn't like that book. I'm still not a fan of that book. I reread it getting ready for this lesson. And I was in a class where the teacher didn't like the book. Our professor gave it to us as a reading assignment so he could tear it apart. He was like me. But I can tell you that there were some issues that came up in class discussion that I found troubling. Because they started fuzzing my lines of black and white and forcing me to consider some gray. One of the issues was uh, brought about more so than by Fletcher's book, which has some good hypotheticals, by uh, the experiences of Corey Tin Boom. Corey Tin Boom and her siblings, sister, had hidden uh, Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe. And the question to the class as we were struggling with this was, okay, if you had a Jew hidden and you knew to reveal that Jew would be to basically condemn them to death. And the Nazis at your door, do you have Jews in there? Or do you know where any Jews are? Do you lie? Do you tell the truth? Do you pretend you don't speak German? Do you, as Steve told me when Steve and I were talking about this, uh, he says, you know, there's always the option of stopping right there and just praying that God will close their ears and strike them dead on the doorstep. Do you, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. Do you tell the truth, literally, but do it by parsing words to leave a misconception? What well, might be called deceive instead of lie. Whatever is, is. Do you parse? What do you do? Now, as an aside, when I sent my reading lesson out, I sent it out to 30 people. You'll see it's got the story of Corey Ten Boom. Out of 30 people who read my lessons, only one, of course, Dale Hearn, writes back and says, you misspelled ten. Corey Ten Boom is T-E-N. You spelled it T-I-N. My fault. But I went back and checked. It's because I have an older edition of the book. My older edition... <laughs> Was justified my spelling. It's Corey Tinboon. What? Uh, she's such a good Christian woman, now deceased, but evidently she had a great sense of humor, so I'm indulging her on that one. Um, 
But the story, the idea was riveting because it didn't take us Bible students long in that ethics discussion to switch to the Bible and the story about Rahab the harlot. When Joshua sends the spies in to spy out the Holy Lands, especially Jericho, because that's where the Jews are headed. And two of the spies go into Jericho and Rahab the harlot rats out the the town and hides the spies because the king's men are out searching for the spies. She hides them in the thatch under the roof and the king's men come to her and say, have you seen the spies? And she says, oh, those guys that went running down the road? And the king's men go running down the road? And she goes back up to the spies and says, okay, I've lied to cover you. Here's the deal I want. When you take over, let my family and me survive. And the deal is arranged, and they do. Now, we can write that off and say, well, that's Rahab the harlot. You know how Rahab the harlot is. (laughs) Of course, some will want to know what the two Israeli spies were doing at Rahab the harlot to start with, but... There's no suggestion there was anything improper. They just clearly had found someone who was willing to to help them out. So the ethical quandary is not what they were doing there. The ethical quandary comes when you read the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, when all of the hall of fame of saints are listed, we have this passage, verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies doesn't condone her lying, but it sure seems to give some, it it lifts her up mighty high. And so we start thinking, well, does that mean circumstances, lying's okay? You know, there's another passage in the Old Testament, a passage that deals with uh, uh, Pharaoh. We'll look at it in a minute. But let me ask you this, what do you do? What do you do when you have these ethical issues where what you seem to think as a black and white answer does not necessarily sit right with you? This is especially troubling because the heart, as we read in the Bible, is deceitful above all things. I live in a world, perhaps you do as well, where it is very easy to rationalize and just as often as we write, we use the eraser. I have a dear friend who was one time studying material more intensely than I'd ever seen him study before. I said, this is very unlike you. You're not a detail person. Why are you studying this material? He says, you've got to know the material to distort the material. And he was joking to some degree. But it's a very difficult world to, to, to do. So these are issues that we want to talk about in this class to some degree for the next few weeks. This is not the typical class of just, I'm just going to say, hey, here's what the right and wrongs are. I would like us to seriously engage each other in in not what seems right right now, 
But where do we have struggles with it when we're not sitting in Sunday school? Uh, Steve Taylor, by the way, our engineer, is working to see if we can get this as authorized ethics credits for engineers, lawyers, accountants, and anybody else who has to have for their certification ethics each year. And there's a good chance we can get that done. So keep that in mind as we work through this. You may want to, you know, you're knocking out some ethics credits. Here's how we're going to approach it today. Today, I want to do three things, and one of them takes most of the time, so don't panic as I go through this. The first thing I want to do is sort of lay out the problem, and we've done that some already, but I want to do it in a little bit more detail by examining some, some biblical issues. So we're going to lay out a problem and, and, and do it in light of the Old Testament. We'll focus in on that specifically today, and then I want to start a solution so I don't leave us in this segment of an ethical quagmire, quagmire without at least some understanding of where eventually I go on these issues. And uh, I do this with all humility, understanding that I hope and pray you don't look to me as the authority. I'm trying to teach what I understand Scripture to be, and Scripture is our authority. So you feel free to disagree with me and you feel free, you follow what God teaches you in the Bible, not what Mark Lanier says. Hopefully I can help you see what God teaches in the Bible, at least from my understanding. Does that make sense? So with all of those legal warnings out of the way, (laughs) let's start by laying out the problem. One of the uh, um, books that I enjoy in my library. It's actually about a five-volume set. Whoa. And I had one of the volumes I brought. Ah, here it is. Sorry. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's um, uh, about five or six volumes. It's a wonderful thing. And if you open it up and you look under ethics you're going to find not one article on ethics. You find a number of articles. Now, this is a Bible encyclopedia, but it has an article for Old Testament ethics. It's got a whole other article written by a whole other scholar on the ethic, singular, of Jesus. Then there's a third article on New Testament ethics written by an entirely different scholar. There's another article on philosophical ethics written entirely by another different scholar. There's another one on ethics and dogmatics. There's another one on ethics, modern problems, each written by different scholars. And you look at it and you think, well, wait a minute. What's this Old Testament ethic, ethic of Jesus, and New Testament ethic? I mean, can't we just say Bible ethics? Aren't they the same from Genesis to Revelation? Since when do ethics start changing? In the Bible. So with this as a problem or an issue, I want us to discuss it and flesh it out a little bit. This is our launching point for this this series. We're going to start with the word itself, the word ethics. It's a word that comes from the Greek word ethos. Ethos means your habit, what you do habitually, your custom, what's customary for you. It's, It's... it's, it's, uh, uh, that's, that's what it is in its traditional sense, the everyday sense, the word ethos. We get ethic from it, okay? Now, there's a Latin word that means the same thing. 
We have a Latin word. It's in its root, M-O-S, most, but it can be an M-O-R as well. It means habit. It means custom. We get an English word from it too. Care to guess? Morals. Ethics, morals, same thing. It's just one comes from the Greek and one comes from the Latin. Uh, It's like uh, if your name is gift of God in Greek, that's Theodore. Theos, God, Dore, gift. If your name's gift of God in Hebrew, it's Nathaniel. Natan is gift, El is God. It's just kind of cool the way words work. All right, ethics, morals, they mean the same thing. It's just a question of whether we're looking at it from a Greek perspective or whether we're looking at it from a Latin root. What does it mean? Well, we see it used, the word ethos used in its customary sense in, for example, Acts 25, 16, where Agrippa is discussing with Festus what to do with the problems of Paul. And he says, I answered them that it's not the custom, it's not the habit, it's not the ethic of the Romans to give any, up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face. Paul uses the word ethic himself, ethos. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good ethics, good morals, good habits good customs. Bad company corrupts good habits. If you have a good habit of not, um, of, of let's say, eating reasonably, uh, you, you want to hang around with me? Well, I might be okay company now, but there was a time in my life where I could take anyone down the eating tubes within three months. You just run with me, and within three months, I'll have your cholesterol at 210. I don't care how good your willpower is. Your good habits will get corrupted by being with me and food. It's a principle. It's a principle that we teach our children. It's a principle that causes us angst and and burning in our stomach if we see our children running with people that aren't good for them to run around with because we know Paul was right good bad company can corrupt the best of habits and the best of ethics and the best of morals so this is the way the word is used ethics morals are the values they're the principles that we use in deciding how we want to live What we're talking about when we talk about ethics is what do we think is right and what do we think is wrong? That's what we're about. And so as we look at the Bible, the question becomes what what do we learn in here that helps us understand how we should live and what we should do? What is good? What is right? What is wrong? Now, some people, including me at times in my life, have been fond of a really strong little cute statement. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And there's good punch to that. That's not a bad thing necessarily to say. But I am convinced that you cannot read the Bible fairly 
and walk away always with the black and white that I want. God has put together a revelation for us that indicates the story is a little more complicated. And to simply say, I don't know why we're studying ethics. We've got the Bible. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Can be an oversimplification on something like this. And so, we look at the Bible and we see some interesting stories. We see in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament, Paul saying women should not adorn themselves with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, I'm not going to ask you to, to stand up if you have on pearls or any gold. I wouldn't embarrass anybody like that. If anybody has their hair braided, would you please stand up so we can see who's going to hell? <laughs> I mean, that's... that's we read this passage and understand there are some within Christianity, women who will not braid their hair, will not wear gold, will not wear pearls, and will only buy clothes at goodwill. But that's not most. It's not even most devout, God-fearing women in 21st century America. Well, what do we say? God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Or might this be something where it's not quite so black and white and we need to read it in context, not only of the passage, but in context of the culture and in the greater context of the entire counsel of God's Word. And when we start doing that kind of thing, we find an interesting set of situations. Now consider Abraham and Sarah. Abraham has got a really terrific-looking wife. And Abraham's about to go into Egypt and he's worried that someone's going to want his wife and knock him off to get his wife. So he tells Sarah, please don't tell anyone we're married. Tell them you're my sister. May get you in a moral quandary yourself, but at least I'll be alive and I'll come rescue you. It happens. And God visits the courtiers of Sister Sarah with harsh judgment. They figure out what's going on, and Abraham gets upbraided, and he takes Sarah and leaves. Bless his heart. He does it again later. And he's not held up highly for it. This is not, oh, gee, Abraham was okay. You read the scripture, it doesn't specifically condemn him, but it's written in such a way where you know it's not real favorable. But you compare that passage to what happens with Pharaoh once the Jews start growing in number. Pharaoh calls in the midwives in the early Exodus, and he says to the midwives, look, when you go there for these Hebrew women, if they give birth to a daughter everything's okay, but if they give birth to a son, we've got to cut down the breeding stock. I want you to kill the infant and tell them the baby never survived the birth. The midwives don't want to do it. So the midwives let the sons be born, let the sons survive. Pharaoh calls the midwives in and says, what on earth is happening? 
I told you to kill the boys. The midwives look him, maybe, in the face. We're not told how they were glancing, but they tell a flat-out bald lie. They say, well, those Hebrew women, man, they can birth them babies. They're tough women. Those boys, they're already out by the time we get there. And they lie about it. And that's how Moses survives. And that's how... And, and, and they're not, the, the Hebrew women, I mean, the midwives are not challenged on it by Scripture. Scripture portrays them heroically for standing up to Pharaoh. In Situation Ethics, it was written in, in 66, or copyright in 66, probably written a few years earlier, but 20 years after World War II. Um, Joseph Fletcher tells the story about a Mrs. Bergmeier, and he gives such details that, that the story's got marks of great credibility to me because people who knew about the story would have been alive when this was published. Mrs. Bergmeier, her husband, fought for the German army. Her husband was captured and shipped to a concentration camp, a POW camp, I should say, in Wales. Mrs. Bergmeier's at home still in Germany trying to scrounge around for food for her children. And she's in the part of Germany that's been occupied now by the Russian troops as the Russian troops continue to march toward Berlin. And Mrs. Bergmeier is caught by the Russian soldiers foraging for food for her children and shipped to the Ukraine to a concentration camp or a POW camp. Her children are left not knowing where their mother went or where their mother is. She didn't have a cell phone to call them. The dad is released at the end of World War II. He returns. He spends a great deal of effort but manages to find his children, trying to put his family back together. But he can't find his wife. He's putting word out everywhere. Somehow word reaches Mrs. Bergmeier in the Ukrainian concentration camp. Mrs. Bergmeier says, I got to get word back to my husband, to my kids that I'm alive. Can't figure out how to do it. Tries to find out what does it take to be released. Only two ways out of that camp. One, you get so sick that they have to send you to a hospital. But you got to be on death's bed and they only send you to the hospital to either make you well or to let you die. And if you get well, they send you back. The second is to be pregnant because they don't want to take care of the kid and you become too much of a liability and they just turn you out. So Mrs. Bergmeier finds a friendly guard who impregnates her. She commits adultery. She is then sent out of the camp, makes her way back to Germany, finds her husband and children, explains everything that's done. They go to their pastor. She gives birth to the child who's welcomed into the family. Joseph Fletcher's question, was this wrong? What should she have done? Now, I don't like those questions. I have all sorts of advice for her. I dig a tunnel. 
Okay, it works on TV. Hogan's Heroes, they got like, you know, I, I, I don't ever, ever, ever want to say to someone, hey, go violate one of God's commandments. You need to for the higher and better good. But there are issues and problems that aren't in themselves simply answered all the time. And they do trouble us if we think about them. One solution is don't think about them. But if you're the kind of person who thinks about them anyway, then this class is for you. Because I want to suggest some things, and I want to suggest, for example, my answer to the Mrs. Bergmeier dilemma, but I can't do it all in one day. So you've got to hang on. But the questions that we have to answer are questions like, are all of the orders and instructions in Scripture of equal value? Is A just as important as B? Is what we read here just as important as what we read there? Another question. Are the Old Testament instructions equally as important and valid and binding as the New Testament instructions? Oh, we know, and we've already talked in this class about some that we're able to say are not. We don't go offer a dead goat for the sins atonement for the year because we have the sacrifice of Christ. But there's a lot more than just offering dead goat sacrifices as far as the Old Testament instructions. And there are some that we ought to consider binding, I feel almost sure. What are they? And are they as important or are they second tier? Which Old Testament instructions are important today, which are binding? Let me give you an example. We can take the Bible and we can read in Leviticus 19.12, you're not supposed to swear falsely by the name of God. God says, if you do that, it profanes my name. So if you swear by the name of God, you better be telling the truth. Or you better fulfill your oath. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. According to Leviticus 19.12, if you lie under that oath, you're sinning in a way that, that's severe enough that God made it pretty clear you better not do it. Okay? Now, get to the New Testament. Matthew 5. Jesus says, you've heard it was said. He doesn't say in Leviticus 19.12 because they hadn't put those labels on it yet. You've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all. You can't swear by the Lord because who are you to bind the Lord? You can't swear by earth. That's the footstool of the Lord. You can't swear by Jerusalem. That's his holy city. Don't even swear by your own head. You can't make one hair white or one hair black. Die doesn't count. He's talking about from the roots. So Jesus says... Now, Marcion, if you remember our church history, Marcion decides the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament have got to be different gods because they're both calling for different plays on the field. One's saying run right while the other one says run left. 
These are the ethical problems. These are the questions. So now that we've laid out some problems, for example, what do we do when the Old Testament seems to have a different ethic than the New Testament? The next thing we've got to do is look at the Old Testament a little closer. If you do it out of the article written by uh, David Allen Hubbard, who was a distinguished conservative evangelical professor at Fuller Theological Seminary out in Pasadena, California, at the time he wrote it. Uh, he says Old Testament ethics, he wrote that article, are found in what he categorizes three different ways. Now these are his choice of categories. You could do it differently, but this is a good one, and I liked it, so I used it. He says there's a section that deals with ethics uh, in, the bio, in the Old Testament from a worship perspective, a section that deals with them from a law perspective, and a section that deals with morals, ethics, from a wisdom perspective. Let's look at them briefly. In worship, you have a section that talks about the rituals of worship. How do you do it? For example, in Deuteronomy 26, we'll read about how you take the first fruits and take them to the temple and offer them to the priest as a sacrifice. Here's how you do it. Here's the ritual. This is what you do when the crop comes in. We think of it as a tithe now. What do you do when you get the paycheck? Well, if you follow the instructions here, you take the percentage that God calls for and you give it to his people. Attitude and conduct of worship is found throughout the Old Testament. Instructions, ethics, morals about how we not only have a conduct of worship, but how we have the right attitude in worship. In Psalms 15, for example, it says, O Lord, who sh who's going to dwell on your holy hill? Who comes before your presence? Who is it that's, that's acceptable in worship before you? And then he answers, Whoever walks blamelessly, who does what's right, who speaks the truth in his heart, who doesn't slander his tongue, who doesn't do evil to his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person's despised, who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change, who doesn't put his money out to loan at interest. These are the things of the person. This is the kind of conduct in worship. Now, what if that applies to us today? When we come to worship the Lord, are we to be a people who don't loan money to anybody for interest? Are we to be a people who despise a vile person? Are we to be a people who swear to their own hurt and when all of a sudden you find out that deal you made is going to hurt you or the commitment you made is going to trouble you, you stick with it anyway. Is, are those attitudes and ethics that bind us today? Um, the expression of worship in the Old Testament. You turn, for example, to some of the worship psalms, Psalm 149. Psalm 149 says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. So is this the way we are to conduct our worship? Should we express our worship in song? Praise His name with dancing. Let you know David wasn't a Baptist. No, I'm joking. 
Praise his name with dancing. Make melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Wasn't a church Christ either. Still joking. These are instructions for worship. Are these binding today? If so, why? If not, why not? How about the law? Look at what the Old Testament says. First of all, in the law, those first five books of the Old Testament, you have stories that give ethical instruction. Talk about positive ethics, how Joseph will go to prison before he'll be seduced by Potiphar's wife. And Joseph is upheld for that good in that story, that moral, ethical good. How about the negative ethics? Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. In those stories, we have ethics that are taught in the law. We have general ethical teaching. Um, but when, when Moses is about to lay out the ethics, he starts out by saying, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. It doesn't matter if you're doing everything he says to do. If you don't have love in your heart, you're not ethical. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? Oh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a clanging symbol. If I have faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm worthless. If I'm doing great deeds before God, but without love, I'm spinning my wheels. Because New Old Testament ethics say, you know, not just follow the law, but have the right attitude. And then there are the specific behaviors. Eat this, don't eat that. Let's get more detailed. You can eat him, her, and him. But you can't eat any one of those three. Rock badgers, rabbits, camels, they're off limits. That's specific behavior. How about the wisdom? There are ins ethical instructions in the wisdom literature. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. Good, moral, positive. Here's something ethically you should do. they got ethical negatives too. It says, don't deceive with your lips. Don't say, I'm going to get you beat back. I'm going to get even with you. Don't do that either. Um, what about the other parts? That, you know, I've named a bunch of ethic things. A lot of them we like. But what about the one where God tells the Jews to go in there and to kill everybody in Ai, including the women and the children, not to leave one survivor? What about when there are a couple of guys out gathering sticks on the Sabbath day and they get caught and they get brought to Moses and say, what does God want us to do? And Moses says, the whole assembly needs to stone them, kill them right now, death penalty, because they're out there getting sticks on the Sabbath. And the assembly does. Well, these are things we need to talk about. And these are things that are going to take us an hour and 20 minutes to talk about them, and I have five left. So here's what I'm going to do. If today's lesson's laying out a problem, we've done that. Considering the Old Testament, we've done it, both parts that make us feel really good and parts that make us squirm, then I want to start the solution because I can't give you the whole solution today. We just don't have time. I want to start the solution. And then next week, we'll continue it. Let me start the solution with this. I believe that God exists. 
I think you would join me in that. And I believe that there is a God who himself is moral and ethical. God has ethics. God has right within him. God is always truthful. God has no lies. This is God. And God does not change. I don't mean to suggest we put a box around God. I merely draw a box to show that God is a definite person. God cannot be other than God is. God is unchanging. The theological word we've learned is immutable. But God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The problem is, God made a perfect world. And he made humanity in his image so that we could share his morality and his morality would reign supreme. But this world is no longer simply under God's power. This world is now under a curse. And the world as we know it, that's the world. That's the axis. This is Houston. That big star over there is Lubbock. But we're under a curse. And as a result, God in all of his perfection and in all of his purity is not readily apparent. God didn't make this world where hurricanes are wiping out people. God didn't make this world where drought makes it hard to eat all the time. God didn't make this world for us to have the stresses and pains in life that we have. The world is under a curse because of sin. And the world is under the control and influence to some degree of the dark forces of Satan. Now, last week we were not here because we had a wonderful chance to be in Guatemala. By the way, we're so jazzed about going with you all on a mission trip there. So jazzed about it. But I am a, um, a person who in some regards is, I'm a clean freak. I like to wash my hands before I eat. Okay, I think it stems back to this science experiment where some teacher scraped something off our hands and put it under a microscope, and I've never been the same. <laughs> and that's before I go to the courthouse and shake hands with all those slimy lawyers. <laughs> Still joking. But I like to wash my hands before I eat, especially if I'm touching the food. Yeah, I just, I do. It's my habit. It's my custom. It's my eating ethic. It's the moral way to eat for me. But did you know in Guatemala, it's not always the clean place America is. And we went in mountain villages where they didn't have clean running water. And we went in places and had to eat in times where I could not wash my hands. Now, does that mean my ethic changed? No. That meant I was in a dirty place and, I wasn't, and my ethic, as clean as it is, had a little different expression then. I was using forks every time I could. When people weren't looking, I'd pull my sleeve down and use it to pick up the food as if my sleeve's germ-free. Now, you, you would see me in a different light, but it's not because I changed my character or my habits or who I am. It's because I was in a different place 
that required a little different behavior. I think that God is good. And I think our definition of good is a definition of what would God do? What would Jesus do? It might sound like a trite bracelet. I think it's a great moral test. Because God, even down when God walks planet Earth, we found out that God, whose ethic never changes, sometimes produces a different result when he's having to deal with people in a cursed, dirty place. And I think as we explore this more, we'll see why sometimes that meant God, who is loving and not wishing any to perish, had to say, kill everybody at Ai. While in the New Testament, or had to say, don't swear by, don't, don't, don't violate your oath by my name. While in the New Testament, he's saying, okay guys, we've reached a point now where you don't need to be swearing at all. We're going to explore this as we go along. This is a tease. I'm one minute over time. Give me one minute for the points for home and we'll be through. No one is good but God alone. The, the, the thrust of this is, that's, that's not from me. Oh, whoops. Hang on. No one is good but God alone. That's not from me. That's from Jesus. The old King James says, call no man reverend. Reverend means good. Jesus wasn't talking about job titles. He's talking about don't ever confuse looking at Mark Lanier or Bob Leone or Richard Black or, or Michelle Taylor. Don't ever confuse them with being the definition of what good is. The definition of good is God and God alone. Whatever God is, is good. If it's not godly, it's bad. It's evil. It's wrong. God is good. So our definition of good requires us to understand God, which means we need to spend a lot of time in how he has revealed himself, not only within Scripture, but in, more specifically, Jesus Christ. Point for home two. Bad company does corrupt good morals. We have young people in here especially. Pay attention. Number three. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yet we do have these issues in front of us that seem to face us in our lives. I'll tell you what will help me. I sent an email out through Steve, but I think most of you have my email address. If not, it's my initials, W-M-L, at Lanier Law Firm. If you've got an ethical situation that's either yours personally or someone that you know, and this isn't Okay, now he's going to think bad about me. Ah, I can't think bad about you. Send it to me. Email it to me. Because it may help us as we process these lessons. I'm not sending you back my advice. Here's what you ought to do, necessarily. But I will take it, prayerfully consider whether or not it's an example I can use in class. So it, it's a homework assignment, if you will, if you're interested, WML at LanierLawFirm.com or send it to Stephen or send it to Lewis or send it to any of us. And uh, we'll keep everybody anonymous. I won't stand up and say, hey, you won't believe the trouble he's having. No, it's totally anonymous. But, but uh, and you can even say, in fact, 
Don't anybody say, here's my problem. Just everybody say, here's a problem I've seen someone face. Okay? Because it'll help us with the class. God has answers. God has direction, and he has guidance for our lives. It may seem gray, but there's a God behind it always. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you again for the Father's Day today, a time to recognize not only our earthly fathers, but you as well. Thank you for your love and your forgiveness. Thank you for the attention you give us. And thank you for the chance to grow before you and understand more fully who you are. That's my prayer, Father, that everyone in here will grow in a greater depth of understanding of who you are, what you have done, and what you would have us do. Because all we want to do, Lord, is follow you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.